Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. So we're finishing chapter 8 this morning, and that means starting in verse 31 and going all the way to the end to verse 37. And as I read the text, which I'm going to do in a moment, but not quite yet, uh, I have this weird feeling. As I reflect and and, and as I thought about how to preach this text, I kept coming back to a a, a movie scene that has been with me for years. This movie came out when I was a freshman in college, The Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams, it's about these, these young, impressionable kids in a, in a literature class, very romanticized view of what literature class is like, and they are shaped forever by the influences of their teacher. But the scene that kept coming back to me is the first classroom experience they have, where the teacher has one of the students read aloud from the textbook, and the textbook includes an assignment. The teacher goes to the board, and he starts writing down the things as the instructions are read. The assignment is to draw a chart that will chart the relative greatness of Lord Byron and William Shakespeare. So I'm going to draw a chart that's going to show them how much uh, greater one is than the other, how you can compare their greatness, that kind of thing, the relative greatness. But this is probably the stupidest classroom assignment ever, because anyone who knows literature knows that Lord Byron and Shakespeare don't belong on the same chart. Byron doesn't even come close to being charitable and relative greatness. But also, there's this other thing. We're talking about poetry. We're talking about art. We're talking about beauty. And you're going to reduce it to a graph? You're going to reduce it to a chart? Well, if you've seen the movie, you know how it goes. It's, it's a wonderful scene where halfway through, the teacher gives up, turns around in disgust, and tells the students to rip the pages out of their textbooks because they're so stupid. And uh, as a student forever after, I longed for a teacher that would encourage us to rip up the textbooks. I never had one, sadly. But, but it's a dumb idea. And when it comes to this passage and the question of how to study a passage like this, how to, how to understand how to chart its teachings, I kind of feel like I'm walking up to the, the chalkboard and trying to somehow turn into a graph something that's not meant to be studied, it's meant to be sung. I mean, these are words of assurance that speak to the heart, that, that resound in the soul. I don't want to reduce them down to a few bullet points. Paul has built a groundwork for this song, if you will, for this ecstatic passage. Right? He's talked about the work of the Holy Spirit, the work that gives us strength in a life where it seems like we are, are, are only bringing weakness to the table. That even at our lowest, even when we can't even form the words, we can't even put into words the needs of our hearts, the Spirit is there to guide us and to comfort us. That despite our suffering, despite the, the, the setbacks that we experience, because of the work of the Spirit, we can be assured that all things work together for the good of those who love him. And that some of those things are in fact the, what you might think of as the secret and often unperceived acts 
in God's plan of salvation. A plan that we looked at last week that stretches all the way back before the foundation of the world and culminates all the way in the second coming of Christ, at the end of this world, in the beginning of the life to come, so that we have cause for assurance. All of that sets the stage. It establishes a certain tone, and then Paul, here in our passage, essentially bursts out with confidence, with exultation, with praise. He glorifies God in these words. And this is our text, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is for us, Paul says. Who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Based on everything that has gone before in this chapter, you know when you hear these words what the answer to that question must be. It's nothing. Nothing. If God is for us, then nothing can stand against us. Then nothing, no weapon that is formed against us can prosper. The thing about reassurances, though, is not only do they speak to you, not only do they they comfort you, not only do they resonate inside your soul, but they also reveal your weakness. Because the stuff that, that, that inspires you inspires you because it's speaking to a need, because it's filling a a, a void. So when we feel these sort of flights of ecstasy from the assurances in in Paul's words, what we're also finding out, if, if we think about it, is what fear drives us. What is the fear that drives people who need to hear words like this? It's the fear of separation, It's the fear of separation. You need to hear a song like this because the fear deep down is that it will not come true. That you somehow will be drawn away from Christ. Things are good, but will they stay that way? Some of us are optimistic by nature. Others of us are realists. Some people go through life thinking, well, life is good and it can only get better. Personally, I'm not one of those kinds of people. Whenever life is going good, I say to myself, well, 
I mean, something bad is no doubt going to happen, right? It, things can't keep going this way for good. Bad is always around the corner. It's people like me who need to hear words like this. And it's people like you who need to hear words like this as well. Whatever things are like for you now, whether you feel secure or not in your relationship with Christ, the reality is, even at the best, it's hard to banish the fear that this is as good as it will ever be. That from here, it's all downhill. To tell you a story, I was apologizing to Hannah Grunendijk because she's working on a paper for school on Hannah Arendt and this really intellectual stuff. And I said, if I had known this and that you were going to be here, I would have reached so much higher in my analogies for this sermon. But, but uh, I have not reached high this morning, and, and this is only the beginning. I'm going to give you a bad analogy to prepare you for a much worse one that's going to come later. But uh, when I was in college, I had a, a pair of shoes that was my favorite pair of shoes. And because it was my favorite, I wore them constantly, all the time. And something happens to those shoes that happens to a lot of shoes that you wear constantly. Um, They started coming apart in this weird kind of way where the soles came like, like separated, detached from the shoe itself, so that when I walked, I would make this kind of flapping sound. And I told myself it was not very perceivable, that I was the only one aware of it, but, but I started to think maybe that wasn't the case. Uh, if you watch old cartoons, clowns and hobos have shoes like this that kind of flop around as you walk. And I started getting really self-conscious, and eventually I just couldn't wear them anymore. I took them off. I examined them. I tried to figure out if there's something I could do. These days, you just wrap them in duct tape, and everybody says that's cool. It wasn't like that when, when I was in college. Um, there was something really frustrating, though. As I studied the way the shoes were, there was what looked like a line of stitches all the way around the shoe, securing the sole onto the shoe. And the funny thing is, even though the sole was flopping free, the stitches were all intact. Like, they were all perfect. And I started looking, and I realized a little something I didn't know before, which is how shoes are made. Uh, the, the, the stitches attach the welt, which is the piece that the, the sole is glued onto. And so the stitches were all intact, but the glue had come loose. They delaminated. And now I couldn't wear my favorite shoes anymore. I took a lesson from that. It was an important life lesson, which is you can't use nice things. You can't wear your favorite shoes. You need some other shoes to wear daily so that your favorite shoes remain intact. Right? And this is not the right lesson, perhaps, but, uh, but it was the lesson I took away. And maybe one that you can relate to. We all have things that are too nice to use. There's, uh, if you don't believe this, uh, guys, there's dishes in your house that if you use, you'll get in trouble. Right? There, even, even like napkins, I've discovered that if you use them, you, you will get in trouble because they're for display, not for use. Right? There are things that are too nice to use because if we use them, they'll fall apart. And I've been susceptible to this kind of thinking ever since. So I, I, I'm totally guilty of, of having like the perfect thing, the, the, the favorite thing that I want to use, but I'm afraid to. And then I have like the, the not very good one that I actually use. I have a knife that's super sharp. I don't use it because if I do, it won't be sharp anymore. I use the unsharpened knife so I don't ruin anything, right? I mean, that's, that's what we do. That's the way we are. In, in really small things, but also in large things as well, there are things that are important to us, that are precious to us, things that are beautiful, and because of their beauty, we assume they are also fragile. 
and we protect them and we don't use them and we fear for them. That if they should be used, if they should be tested, they'll fall apart. And when we think about salvation, the question I want to ask is, is salvation one of those things? Is salvation a beautiful thing that God has given us, a sort of perfect crystalline structure too fragile to put to use? I think a lot of times the way we behave about salvation, the way that we regard salvation, it suggests that's exactly what we think. Salvation is a beautiful work of God that needs to stay behind the velvet rope and mustn't be touched because if it were to go out into the world, it would shatter. Most of us think salvation is fragile. Paul wants you to know how strong it really is. This is a passage about the strength of salvation, what it can stand up to, what it can endure, why you don't need to be afraid that it's too nice to put to use. Paul says nothing, nothing will be withheld from God's people. And there will be no condemnation for God's people because of this strong salvation. If you're in Christ, then you need to know that absolutely nothing will be held back. That God is not holding anything in reserve when it comes to you. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's a reminder here of what God has done. We can talk about it in in abstract terms, the atonement, the doctrine of the atonement, the work of Christ on the cross. But what we're talking about when we use those words is a bloody sacrifice that was made for us. An extreme solution to an extreme problem. And Paul is taking that reality and saying to the the believer who trusts in Christ but worries about the fragile bond He's saying, think about it. You're worried that there's something God might not give you, but the God that you're concerned will withhold something from you is the one who gave up his son to die for you. How much sense does that make? If he was willing to do this, if he was willing to give up what was most precious to him, how can you possibly imagine that anything will be withheld? He gave his son for us, which is why when we come to the table, we say, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Words that are inspired by Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. If God did that, what won't he do? What more does he need to prove? What more does he need to demonstrate about the strength of the love that we're talking about in salvation? Nothing will be held back from God's people, and there will be no condemnation. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? If you're still worried that there's a punishment waiting for you, 
If you're overwhelmed by the weight of your own sin, the the bad choices you've made, the rebellion, the ways in which you have struggled and doubted and turned, and, and you are awake with anxiety about those things, Paul says, who's going to condemn you? It is God who has justified you. When the judge passes the verdict, when you have been justified, there's no longer a charge to answer. There is no longer anything to fear. There will be no condemnation. If you continue to live in fear of judgment, despite your faith in Christ, Paul says, wake up, wake up. The judge has already ruled in your favor. If the judge makes you just, no one can condemn you. So all of God's people can live without fear. If you're in Christ, God has given you all things and there's no condemnation. But furthermore, not only that, but nothing will come between you and Christ. Speaking about Jesus, Paul says Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So he reminds us more and more of what Christ has done. If the Father offered up the Son, well, what about the Son's involvement? What is the Son's relationship to us? Well, it's Jesus who died for us, but more than that, was raised to newness of life so that we might have a hope in life to come if we are in him, who is now at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, who's pleading our cause in the presence of God. There is nothing to fear from that quarter as well. If God is for us, if Christ is interceding for us, what is there to fear? But then he puts his finger on exactly the fear. And asking this next question, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And that's the rub. Because you've heard me say it here and you've seen it again and again in Scripture. All that we have, we have in Christ. There is no condemnation if we are in Christ Jesus. But that's the question, right? Are we? Are we? All of this good stuff belongs to the people of God, but are we? the people of God. We have loved him, but do we love him as we should? There is a bond between us, but will it hold, or will something come between me and Christ? Will something separate me from the love of Christ? That's the fear. And here's the worst analogy. It comes from a wonderful movie of the 1990s called Titanic. And when I say wonderful, I should make little quotes. What you need to know about Titanic is that Lori and I went to see it in the movie theater. Not willingly, but on a double date kind of thing that we couldn't get out of. And uh, I've endured a lot. I've walked out of movies that, that I had paid good money for just because I couldn't stand how dumb they are. But when you go with other people... It's harder to walk out because, you know, there's potential for misunderstanding. So we were trapped. And it took a long time, let me tell you. If you've not seen Titanic, icebergs do not show up for a while. And uh, the moment, the moment they showed the little hint of an iceberg on the horizon, a voice inside me was like, steer directly towards it and crash now. 
It's like, I came here for, for, for destruction and I want it immediately. Well, those desires are not fulfilled for a long time and eventually it happens. And, and at the very end, sorry, I'm going to spoil this for you. Uh, the main characters are not drowned in the sinking of the ship. Instead, uh, the, the two uh, the, the guy and the girl, the guy is, is Jack, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and uh, Rose, his girlfriend, is on this piece of flotsam. It's like a door frame, so that it's like a little raft, but there's not enough room for him to get on there as well, so he just has to hold on to the raft, and he just needs to make it through to morning, and then they'll be fine, and, uh, and, and sadly, uh, from some points of view, not so sad in, in my opinion, uh, Poor Jack just can't hold on overnight. And in the morning, what should have happened like an hour and a half earlier finally happens, and, and, and it's, it's all done. Well, here's the thing. Like when you think back about an experience like, like watching that movie, sometimes you, in your mind it gets a little confused, and you start saying to yourself, poor Jack, you know, he was killed in the sinking of the Titanic, but he wasn't. He survived the sinking of the Titanic. He was saved, as it were, from that event. He actually died later because he just couldn't hold on. Like He escaped the, the, the terrible uh, judgment that was poured out on that ship. The problem was his salvation was of a nature that it required him to cling, and, and he just couldn't do it. Like His grip eventually broke. Um, that is the way a lot of us think about the gospel, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We have been saved from the catastrophe. And all we have to do to stay that way is hold on. If we can just hold on, if we can just not do the bad things, if we can just make good choices for a little while longer, then when the sun rises, we will be rescued. But the problem is, if you know yourself well, you know that like Jack, you can't possibly hold on so tenaciously. You won't make it overnight. And that's the fear. Yes, God has done so much for me. Yes, Jesus, through his love, has done all these wonderful things. But if there's anything left for me to do, even if it's as simple as just not letting go, then all is lost. I will be separated from the love of Christ. By what? By what current? By what tide? Paul says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Shall these things separate us from the love of Christ? In a word, suffering. All the bad things that might happen. Will that suffering separate us? Will it get too hard for us to endure faithfully? Will we be forced to let go. Every group of Christians, every congregation of Jesus Christ knows the, the pain of seeing that grip loosen. Right? We've all seen what it's like to have people cling to the cross and confess Christ as their Savior, only to experience hardship, suffering, persecution, tribulation, and feel, I can't endure and let go. So in saying this, in addressing this fear, I mean, this is a real thing. Right? This is a real thing. Like, we see it happen. We fear for ourselves. 
Paul does here what Jesus does in the wilderness when he's tempted by Satan. He answers the fear. He answers the fear with scripture. And he does something he hasn't done for a while in the book of Romans. He quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22. This is a a cheery and inspirational passage. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, which no Sunday school class has ever used as a memory verse. Right? You're thinking, wow, Paul, this is not the way to reassure. And yet, in a strange way, it is. What is he doing here? What's the point of this? Is he just illustrating the suffering with an Old Testament quotation? No, he's doing a little bit more than that. Because remember, the fear behind the tribulation, behind the suffering, is that somehow it represents an unexpected contingency in the plan of God. Like everything was going well, and, and if circumstances could have remained perfect, then salvation, you know, it could have traveled to its completion. The problem is stuff got crazy. Life got hard. Stuff that wasn't anticipated originally came into the mix, so we were taken by surprise and, and, and pulled down into the depths. And Paul's saying, wait, Surprise? Surprise? No. Let me refer you back to the scriptures, to the Old Testament, to the stuff that was written down thousands of years ago that gave you fair warning of what to expect. He's saying this has always been on record. The fact that as believers we endure hardship and suffering, it's not a surprise. It's part of the job description. It goes with being conformed to the image of a suffering Savior, to participate in his suffering, to endure those trials. Our faithful endurance of testing gives glory to God. This is all part of it. So he cites Psalm 44, 22, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Does this mean we will be separated from the love of Christ? No, look at those first words, for your sake. Will the suffering and the hardship that we endure for his sake separate us from him? Or will it bind us to him all the more? Paul is saying it's the latter. No, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us in all these things, in all of the trials, in all of the suffering, in the temptation, in the doubt, in all of the things that we have weathered and endured, the very battle that you imagined would be your defeat, Paul says, becomes the greatest victory and makes us, in his words, more than conquerors, which in saying that, what he means is it's, it's kind of doubling down, like, like not just conquerors, but like the conquerors of all conquerors, the mightiest of all battles, the greatest victory. This is a victory that will be absolute. And it comes, note, through him who loved us. All of this is through Christ, as we were saying, but Christ who loved us, and that's the point, his love for us, not our love for him. You think salvation is weak because you think salvation depends on your love for him. And you know how fragile that is. As Satan says 
in the case of Job. Of course he loves you. You're good to him. You bless him, and so he blesses you. But if you allow him to suffer, he will curse you. And we hear that, and we think, yeah, I get that. Because I bless him when he blesses me, and when I suffer, I curse him. So yeah, it makes sense. Salvation must be weak if it depends on our love. But in fact, salvation is strong because it rests on Christ's love for us, which is of a wholly different character than the love that we feel, than the love that we know. The love of God, the love of God has tied us to the cross. As the passage ends, Paul widens the scope, not so much from, from like the things in life that we fear might pull us away from Christ, but, but he widens it to like every conceivable thing, anything that you can imagine, and a lot of things that you've probably never imagined or thought of, and says none of it has the power to do what you fear. For I am sure that neither death nor life, not the end of life, not what we endure in life, no circumstance of life, nor angels, nor rulers. So angels are good heavenly powers, good spiritual powers. Rulers here, potentates, uh, these are bad spiritual powers. Angels and demons, you might think. Neither angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing in the world now, but also nothing that is to come in the future. Nothing around the corner, nor powers, he adds, any other conceivable spiritual authority, any power, nor height, nor depth. So kind of encompassing everything, as high as you go, as low as you go, nothing in the whole physical, the whole spiritual realm to drive that home, nor anything else in all creation. Basically, nothing at all. Nothing you can think of, nothing you can imagine, nothing if you put your mind to it you can come up with. None of that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of it. Because that love is what binds us to him. His love for us is what binds us to the cross. Powerful assurance. And there's always a downside to receiving powerful assurance because powerful assurance, we sometimes tell ourselves, that can lead to presumption. People can become a little presumptuous if they get too much assurance. It's like I know there are people who get nervous when we talk about election and predestination, stuff like that. We only talk about it because it's there. Paul talks about it, and it'd be weird not to talk about what Paul talks about when you're talking about what Paul talks about. But I know you get nervous. I know that that when you see Paul saying something like, God gave him up for us all, yay! But then when in the next line he says that us all is referring to God's elect, God's chosen people, it's like, (sighs) sigh. Paul, I wish you wouldn't talk that way. It sounds a little weird. The fear is that all this talk about election, of being chosen by God, God's chosen people, all that kind of stuff, that it encourages spiritual pride. You know, that whole frozen chosen thing, people who think they're better than everybody else. I'm God's special person, and and, and everything works together for my good, that kind of thing. You get the idea. 
It also can be discouraging to people who are hearing the gospel, right? They, they hear the call to repent and believe in Christ, and then you bring out this election predestination stuff, and like, well, I guess I'm just not one of the elect. You're like, ah. Okay, so fair enough. Fair enough. I just want to say for the record that none of us have any reason to feel any sort of spiritual pride when we talk about election and predestination, when we talk about the church as God's chosen people. If what you take from that is a sense of your, your betterness, that there's something about you that is more worthy, more deserving, or anything like that of salvation, what that is is that is the sin of pride, and it's something you should confess and not nurture in your heart because it's a horrible and terrible twisting and distortion of the gospel. If you think that you're here because you're better than other people, you think that God loves you in a special way because of some goodness within you, uh, not only is that not what the gospel is saying, but believing that sort of thing will inoculate you against the gospel. You will never hear the humbling words of grace that you are meant to hear. So I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm also going to acknowledge as well that sometimes we just have to, to, to make this point that when we talk about election and predestination, what we don't mean is the fix is already in. So we're just going to preach the gospel to the people it belongs to and not worry about the rest. But the gospel belongs to everyone. The call to repent and believe in Christ is one that we proclaim to everyone because we have no idea what God has decreed in his secret counsel, we have no clue about, about who is, is elect and who is not. We can only judge based on response to the gospel, right? We only know these things through what the Spirit does in the hearts of people. That's all we have. So I'm acknowledging all of that. And yet, and yet... I'm going to say, as real as those fears are, there is a greater need that passages like this speak to. Because the fear, I would say, that most eats away at the heart of people today, including believers today, is this fear. That the gospel is not real, not true, not strong enough, whatever. That the world is strong and the faith is weak. That's the real fear. And we need to be told that the truth is actually different. We need to hear that God is at work powerfully in a way that cannot be thwarted, that the powers that seem so great to us, the cultural forces, the, the, the weight of public opinion, the, the, the darkness all around us, that all of that stuff, that stuff that on the scale of power, Paul ranks down like to the middle and, and below. The stuff that you think determines reality is nothing compared to the power of God. That's the assurance that we find in these words. Your head may doubt, so Paul gives your heart reason to sing. It was true then, and it is true now. God speaks to us as surely as he has to any other generation through these words, assuring us of the love of God, a love from which we will not be separated and cannot be separated. The work of the Spirit in your heart, which has been the subject in one way or another of all of chapter 8, the work of the Spirit in your heart is evidence of a love that God had for you before the world began.
a love that will continue just as strongly till Christ comes again. So you can believe it. If your faith is in Christ, you are tied to the cross. And nothing in all creation can pull you away. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.